as is often the case at this time of the year, there has been a rush of people buying the online program, Psychology of Success, I suppose. It's a New Year thing, isn't it? People want to start a new life with a new year, start changing their lives or aspects of their lives. And it's something that is a phenomenon that I've noticed every year since the online program was launched in late 2018. One of the guys who bought last Tuesday turned up on his first Wednesday evening program owners Zoom the following evening. Now, he hadn't even got into the program at this moment in time, and he immediately found himself in a conversation with people who are at all different stages in their own personal journeys towards discovering who they really are, their own inner power, and the power that we all have to change our lives. Right now, you don't have to wait for a new year to do it, obviously. But I got an email from this particular guy the following morning saying that it was an amazing conversation, but at times he was a little lost. He said, because an awful lot of the people had mentioned at one point or another during the conversation, the importance of meditation. Now, he'd only just started out, as I said, in the online program, so he hadn't really got into meditation itself at that moment in time. Although subsequently, I heard from him yesterday when he said that he had actually been meditating using the Headspace app for a number of years. I had another conversation with a long-standing client last Friday morning, a one-to-one -one client that I've known for seven or eight years at this point in time. He was meditating long before I met him. He had been trained in Vipassana meditation long before I met him. He was meditating 30, 40, 50 minutes a morning long before I met him. But the conversation I had with him on Friday related to the frustration he is now feeling as a result of not achieving the kind of results that fellow online program owners are achieving. Now, as I said, he's a one-to-one -one client and has been for a number of years, but he became an online program owner owning the Psychology of Success online program about six months ago. He said, I'm not getting the benefit out of meditation that everybody else in the online program seems to be getting. He said, I'm missing something. And I said, you have a major stumbling block, a major challenge on your hands, a major disadvantage in comparison to people who came to meditation fresh as a result of the online program. I said to him, you were meditating long before I ever met you. And therefore, you were meditating for God knows what purpose. God knows what brought you to meditation in the first place. But people who generally come to meditation in the first place, and they're often looking for peace of mind or just simple relaxation or, you know, clearing the noise in their own heads. They don't understand the primary importance of why we meditate. And that is why the online program is structured in a way so that people don't get into meditation until they're about a quarter of the way or a little bit more perhaps into the online program. The first bit of the online program is all about the why we need to meditate. And in this podcast episode, I want to go back to that very basic starting point. 
First of all, remember, meditation is not the be all and end all. Meditation is a tool. Meditation is like a hammer. And if you don't know what to do with the hammer, even though you might be quite skilled with the hammer, then you're going to try to cut a piece of wood with the hammer. And of course, it won't work. You won't get the results that you think you should get, or you won't get the results that other people are getting who have had it explained to them what the hammer is for. So it's very important to go back to basics. And at the start of a year like this, it's probably as good as any other time to remember, first of all, why we need to meditate. That's what I want to start with today. The normal mind operating on what cognitive psychology calls automatic pilot is full of noise. It's full of thought-fueled noise. The noise comes from within. It doesn't come from around you. People often find or think that they are stressed as a result of, for example, the pressure at work or the pressure of family relationships or the simple pressures of ordinary everyday life, like getting stuck in traffic and being late for a meeting or being late for picking up the kids. None of those things cause you stress. None of those things cause you to be less relaxed than you might otherwise be. None of those things is a challenge. The challenge that we have as human beings is to take charge of what is going on between our own two ears. Because the noise that is generated by the normal thinking automated mind comes from a body of what psychology calls stored knowledge that we learned during our formative years that is on a constant repeat loop day in day out during our adult lives. It is the way in which the brain evolved to ensure that we don't have to give all our attention to the ordinary stuff of everyday life so that all of our attention is held in reserve should an extraordinary and life-threatening event take place. In other words, we're designed to survive. We're designed to run away when confronted by a man or woman-eating beast. We're designed to make it through the day. We're not designed to be happy and contented. Our minds are not structured to enable us achieve our goals and objectives or achieve pretty much anything to which we set our minds. That is why most people at this time every year will find themselves committing to similar New Year's resolutions to those that to which they committed in the past. People don't just feel that they are stuck. They actually get very, very frustrated with themselves. As my friend last Friday said to me, he said, I had an interesting conversation with a number of my own friends over the new year, and they were talking about their New Year's resolutions. And he told them, I don't hold with New Year's resolutions for the simple reason that they only appeal to the thinking mind. And the thinking mind on that loop that I mentioned a few minutes ago isn't capable of changing anything because it is stuck on that loop. And therefore he said to me that New Year's resolutions are basically of no great value. And he said, I tried to explain that to my friends, but they didn't get it. I said, you're wrong. 
I said it isn't that New Year's resolutions are of no great value. It's much worse than that. New Year's resolutions actually confirm to us year in, year out, that we cannot change our lives. That makes us more frustrated, more annoyed with ourselves, more confirmed in our beliefs that we are unable to change our lives. So in other words, New Year's resolutions actually create not just a false environment and a false narrative, New Year's resolutions actually do us down even further and further confirm that we're stuck with the humdrum and the treadmill of ordinary everyday life and nothing much ever really changes. Now, from the perspective of the way in which cognitive psychology knows how the normal mind works, the statement that I've just made is fundamentally true. Nothing ever fundamentally changes. Nothing big ever changes in your life other than through for something like bereavement. Now, we don't want to go there in this particular podcast. We've talked about bereavement before. If you're interested in going back through some of the back catalogue of podcast episodes that is available at this moment in time. I want to come back to the fundamental point that I've just made. Nothing's going to change in your life if you don't take control of your state of mind. Let me put it another way. You're not going to have to scale any challenges to change your life if you take on the one challenge of taking control of your state of mind. Now, this is the fundamental why when it comes to meditation. Meditation enables us to take control of our state of mind. Meditation enables us break the link between seeing, feeling, hearing, smelling, and tasting what is going on in the here and now and thinking about it. Let me explain that because basically what I've just described is a process known as cognitive appraisal. We are taking in a vast amount of data every day through our five senses. We see, we feel, we hear, we smell and we taste what is going on around us. Precious little of that is actually processed by our minds because the process of cognitive appraisal takes the raw data we see, feel, hear, smell, and taste into a what might be described as a sausage machine. It goes in one end as raw data and comes out the other end as something related to something that we experienced when we were young and impressionable, because it is actually put through the sausage machine of the 70,000 thoughts that come from the stored knowledge that we learned during our formative years. Let me put it more simply than that. Somebody says something to you, and to enable you understand what has just been said to you and the meaning behind it, you put it through your perspective that you learned when, in particular, you were three years old, and you make... Yeah, that, that's, that, that's the process that we use to make sense of what's going on. Obviously, if I am here using stuff that I learned in 1960 to make sense of what is going on in the here and now, I'm going to make utter nonsense of what is going on in the here and now. As a result of that, not only have I automatically made nonsense of what is going on, I'm automatically going to react to what is going on as well. That's why people get themselves into even greater difficulties as a result of reacting to what is going on around them, or should I say reacting to what they think is going on around them. In other words, when we use our minds normally, 
We are always relying on the 70,000 thoughts that come from the learning that we took on board when we were young and impressionable, as a result of which we are always living the same, might loosely be described as a groundhog day, so that nothing not only ever changes in our lives, but nothing is capable of changing in our lives because we're stuck on that loop. Now, that is the way the normal mind works. It is as simple as that. What I've done is presaged 90 years of research in the field of psychology and 23 years of research in the field of neuroscience that actually shows how the brain operates that process of cognitive appraisal and how the brain is incapable of even perceiving stuff that it doesn't expect to perceive as a result of the 70,000 thoughts that are whizzing through it. That's a very important point because if I go all the way back to 1932 and Bartlett and his proposition that we only perceive what we expect to perceive, as a consequence, we only can achieve what we expect to achieve, and our expectations having been set for us when we were young and impressionable, and now incarnate or embodied in those 70,000 thoughts that are whizzing through our head every day, we have this set of fixed expectations. We can't perceive what we don't expect, and we'll never achieve what we don't expect to achieve. Embedded in those 70,000 thoughts are the beliefs that we hold about ourselves. And this is where it gets really sad and nasty. Because we took the psychological snapshots, that's how we learned our facts of life as children. We took our psychological snapshots, particularly during the third year of our lives, where our minds were open, we were children, our minds were like sponges, and we were taking in everything, good, bad, and indifferent. Now, that's only half true. Rarely did we take in anything that was good. We took in the indifferent, and most importantly, we took on board the bad. Why? The more negative we look at ourselves, the more negative we look at what's going on in our lives, the more likely we are to be alert, more likely we are to be on our toes should we encounter a life-threatening situation. It's simply the brain that evolution gave us. Now, go back to what I said a couple of minutes ago, that you make sense of everything that is going on now on the basis of what you learned during, in particular, the third year of your life, and in particular, what you learned about yourself. The stress that people experience or they think they experience, I'll come back to that in a moment. The stress that people experience as a result of the pressure that they are under at work is because deep down, they don't believe they're up to doing what they need to do or even what they're paid to do because they have this poor impression of themselves. Nobody that I have ever met believes themselves to be perfect. And if anybody that I ever met did tell me that they thought they were perfect, I knew they were lying for the simple reason that, as I said a minute ago, evolution has seen to it that we will always be predisposed to taking negative psychological snapshots about ourselves during our formative years rather than positive ones. In other words, we're all balanced people. We've chips on both shoulders. We're all fundamentally flawed in our own heads, but it's only in our own heads that we are fundamentally flawed. 
What do I mean by fundamentally flawed? As I said, for starters, you will always be predisposed to taking negative snapshots, but it runs deeper than that, because particularly in Western culture, we are brought up to learn that we need to better ourselves. We better ourselves through education. We need to better ourselves spiritually because perhaps we were born with the mark of original sin. Now, I know that sounds very old fashioned, but that belief system has been around in the Western world for 2000 years, and that doesn't wash out of the system overnight. It is a deeply held socio-cultural religious or spiritual perspective that we all carry with us to a greater or lesser extent. It forms one of the foundations on which is built all the other nonsense that we learned about ourselves that makes us feel less than adequate. The nonsense that we think we know about ourselves that trips us up or that gets in our own way when we do begin to take the bull by the horns and try to change our life or any aspect of it. What do I mean by any aspect of it? Well, we're in the second week of the new year. And my wife, Lisa, went back to the gym after Christmas. And of course, the gym was jammed with people trying to change that aspect of their lives. It was more jammed last week than it is this week. And in another couple of weeks, it'll be back to the normal number of people just wandering in and out during the course of the day. One of my very first clients in Ireland many years ago was an owner of a chain of gyms. And he told me that the marketing process for people who owned gyms ran on kind of a six or seven week cycle. People would sign up, pay up, and six weeks later would be gone assuming that they had actually turned up at all in the meantime he, he told me that the average number of visits to a gym by a new member was six not six a week not six a month six in total he also told me that the gyms would always be jammed at the beginning of the new year but by valentine's day it, it'd be back to well essentially the point that i needed to start another marketing cycle that's how that particular business operates. And that speaks volumes for how the normally minded person will try to change that aspect of their lives and give it up as a bad job after a couple of weeks. Why? Because their minds are designed to keep them in the comfort zone of being unfit or unhealthy or overweight, because at least they're making it from one day to the next, which is how evolution designed our brain. At least they're going to survive and make it back to bed every night. So let's come back to the start of this episode today. There is a fundamental why that we need to meditate. And until you know why you need to meditate, you're not going to get what you will get out of it if you do it with the purpose of taking charge of your own state of mind. So that is a fundamentally important point that I want you to understand now. I've been doing this for 28 years. And the people who are most challenged when it comes to living their lives to the full are the people who were meditating before I met them. Because meditation is taught in a vacuum. 
meditation is taught maybe perhaps a standard eight-week meditation program you go into the community hall or the parish hall or you go into a room in a gym or hotel and you sit down and you're taught how to meditate no one ever tells you why you need to do it and it's like anything else in life if you don't know why you're doing something it becomes far more difficult to do it as a result of which you'll probably give it up exactly the same thing as people going to the gym it becomes far more difficult to do it and they give it up why because they don't realize that their brain is designed to stop them changing their lives in evolutionary times there was great danger in change what if i changed my life and left the herd where there are safety in numbers what if i put myself in harm's way as a result of changing my life now things are very different now than they were when we were hunter gatherers but we're still lumbered with the same evolutionary brain until you start meditating hold that thought for a moment because i said i wanted to come back to the issue of stress that i mentioned a minute ago when i said people are stressed as a result of the pressure that they experience for example at work because they fundamentally don't believe themselves to be up to whatever is being thrown at them at work stress works the same as anything else that you encounter in the outside world you see feel hear smell and taste what's going on you put it through the cognitive appraisal sausage machine and you come to the conclusion that you think you are stressed now it's actually a little more complicated but far more automatic unfortunately when it comes to stress because the stress response is the fundamental evolutionary response that is built into us why because in evolutionary times when confronted by a man or woman eating tiger the stress response is what saved our lives so it's fundamentally built into us but it is what is known as two-step cognitive appraisal it's even crazier than what we talked about a couple of minutes ago let's take a simple example i go into work in the morning and i'm confronted by somebody who is coming down on me every day he or she may or may not be a bully that's a, another conversation but i'm confronted by a situation where i immediately perceive there to be pressure now, that's the first step in the whole process of two-step cognitive appraisal there's pressure and the pressure is real by the way that's okay our lives are full of pressure our lives are full of challenges the next thing that will happen in the two-stage process is that i will ask myself what do i make of this pressure in other words i'm going to use stuff that i learned during the third year of my life to try to figure out what is actually going on in the here and now i'm going to get the answer wrong obviously that's the first step so now i have the wrong answer to the question that i posed to my own mind what's actually going on here now i'm going to react to it but how am i going to react the second step in the two-step cognitive appraisal process is i'll ask myself now that i think i know what's going on in other words now that i don't know what's going on i'll ask myself is little old me with all my perceived weaknesses up to dealing with this and you know what the answer is going to be because it is little old me with all my perceived weaknesses the answer will be no that's the second step and that is what triggers the stress response what happens when the stress response is triggered 
As a result of all that automatic thought, now I'm actually stressed. Even though stress is triggered by thought, nothing to do with what's going on with the pressure from the outside. Now that I've come to the conclusion, now that I think that I'm stressed, I'm actually stressed because as a result of that thought process, which is automatic, cortisol is released into my system. My heart rate goes up, my blood pressure goes up, the production of fatty cholesterol in my cardiovascular system goes up, and my immune system and my digestive system, they're both suppressed. So I'm doing damage to mind and body. But it's only because I think I'm stressed. It is only because of that two-step process of cognitive appraisal, using stuff that I learned about myself when I was young and impressionable. That's what has caused the stress not what is actually going on in the world. As I said a minute ago, our lives are full of pressure and challenge. But one person's challenge is another person's motivation. The same thing could happen to people and one would be highly motivated and the other would curl up in a ball. What's the difference? It's what they've made of what is going on in their own head that is the difference. Our lives are full of pressure and challenge. But when we take control of what is going on in our own state of mind, we're up to dealing with the pressure, we're up to dealing with the challenge. And it is very often in rising to a challenge that we turn what is potentially an imperfect moment into what my owners of the online program know as perfect moments. So again, let me roll back things here a little bit. The first reason that we need to meditate is to actually take control of our state of mind so that we stop the process of cognitive appraisal, so that we stop the process of two-step cognitive appraisal in relation to stress, and so that we actually become present. As a result of which, as a result of having taken our own mad 70,000 thoughts out of the equation, we know what's going on. As a result of which, we know what to do. We also know what not to do, which is equally important. As a result of which, we start taking the steps that we need to take to change our lives or any aspect of it. How does this actually work? Is it just a good idea or is there a load of science behind it? Well, we know and we have known for the last 24, 25 years that meditation changes the way the brain behaves itself and changes the actual physical structure of the brain. We've known for over 25 years that when we meditate, we activate what is known in cognitive psychology as the attentional spotlight, our ability to pay attention, or if you like, our ability to focus. We know from those studies that until we meditate and take charge of that area of our brain known as the attentional spotlight, that it is not available to us as adults as a result of the way evolution saw to the development of our brain to enable us make it through the day. So as I've said to so many people over the years, the first day you meditate is the first day that you have taken control of your attentional spotlight in your life. 
Now, the attentional spotlight was on when you were three years old. That's how you took your formative psychological snapshots. But if you were in control of your attentional spotlight when you were three years old, you wouldn't have taken any of the negative psychological snapshots that have damaged you in later life, would you? Your attentional spotlight was on when you were three, but you didn't have control over it. After the age of 12 or 13, the attentional spotlight is switched off. There are a whole load of evolutionary reasons for that that I'm not going to go into now. But if you're, say, 45 and you meditate for the first time, that's the first time you will have switched on your attentional spotlight since you were 12 or 13. And it is the first time in your life that you will have switched on your attentional spotlight and have it under your own control. What's the upshot of that? Well, the upshot is that suddenly I'm able to focus. And, you know, the proposition that I have given everybody over the years is a really, really simple one. I recollect going into one of the large telecommunication companies in London many, many years ago to talk to the head of HR in relation to training that he wanted me to do with a variety of leadership teams sprinkled around that organization. He took me to the staff canteen or restaurant. It was a canteen, but they called it a restaurant to make it a bit posher. But anyway, he took me to the canteen for a cup of coffee. It was about 11 o'clock in the morning. There were a few other people around. And as we were queuing up to get our cup of coffee, he turned to me and he said, OK, tell me in one sentence why you're here. And I said, in one sentence, the proposition is very, very simple. I teach people how to focus. And when you know how to focus, for starters, everything becomes easier. That's the proposition. All I teach people is how to focus. Now, people don't understand the word focus. People will often say to me, oh, I'm focused on my goals. You can't be focused on your goals because your goals are things that will happen in the future. The definition of focus is that I'm paying attention to what I'm doing now. That people will often say to me, but surely I need to know what my goals are. But that is what I would call the second piece of what I call the two-piece jigsaw. The first piece of the jigsaw is I need to focus. If I'm not present, if I'm not here doing what I'm doing now, I'm missing an action and I'm actually missing my life. We could have a whole conversation about that. The second piece of the jigsaw is that I've set my mind, or should I say I've set my subconscious brain, to the coordinates where I wanted to land in terms of what normal crazy people would call their goals, objectives, and plans. It's a really, really simple proposition. First of all, I need to know why I must meditate. If you don't meditate, you're not in charge of what's going on in your own head. When you start meditating, you actually take control of the levers of power in your own mind. And they are very powerful levers indeed. When you start to meditate, you turn on the attentional spotlight. With regular meditation, that part of your brain that houses the attentional spotlight becomes restructured so that the attentional spotlight becomes available to you under your control when you're not meditating. In other words, during the cut and thrust of your everyday life, which is when we actually need to focus. But more than that, 
with regular meditation, the attentional spotlight, which acts as a conductor for the key components of the subcortical brain, enables those components, the insula, the amygdala, and the hippocampus, restructure themselves too, so that they start behaving in a novel way. And that novel way of intercommunication between the three component parts of the subcortical brain means that the 70,000 thoughts in your head that get in your way and lead to all the bad thoughts that you have about yourself, they're precluded from coming into your consciousness. They're literally blocked in the back part of your brain without going into the science of it. Essentially, the restructuring of the subcortical brain stops you having bad thoughts about yourself, or actually, as somebody said to me recently, stops me getting in my own way. But more than that, as a result of regular meditation, as a result of restructuring the subcortical components of your brain, we start knowing what's going on in real time. We start being in a position to make decisions and choices in real time. The most fundamental and obvious of which is I know when not to put my foot in it. As I said a few minutes ago, it's just as important to know what not to do as it is the things that you actually need to do. Now, an awful lot of people will say to me, well, hold on, I joined a gym, so I know what I have to do. I have to go to the gym and I have to get fit. How, how is that going to change as a result of meditation? Meditation as a result of us being present and knowing what we need to do, and as a result of precluding the self-defeating thoughts coming into our head, meditation and the clear mind that it develops enables us to do what we need to do without thinking about how difficult it is to do it. So many people have said to me over the years that they have amazed themselves when they have done things that they thought they couldn't do, or surprise themselves when they have said things that they thought they wouldn't get away with saying. It's the only thought that gets in the way. And ultimately, the thought, the bad thoughts that we have about ourselves that get in our own way, that is the root of all evil in our lives. It's the root of stress. It is the root of why you're rooted to where you think you are right now. You need to liberate yourself. You need to free yourself from your own thoughts. And the only way we can do that is through taking control of what is going on in our heads at specific times in the morning, for starters, through meditation, so that we restructure our brain through regular meditation, so that those thoughts that do get in our own way don't get in our own way anymore. So we've gone back to basics in this particular episode. The key thing you need to remember is that you actually need to meditate because your life depends upon you taking control of your own state of mind. You don't need to worry about what's going on around you. You don't need to worry about the pressures and challenges of everyday life. You simply need to rise to the one challenge over which you have total control, taking charge of your own state of mind. You're the only person who can do that. And the great news is, you're the only person who can control what's going on in your mind. Now, somebody has said to me recently, you're talking about mind control. No, I'm talking about exactly the opposite. I'm talking about you being so clear and so present as a result of being able to fully and properly focus that you are actually going to be in a state of mind, which the University of Chicago calls flow, 
what athletes call being in the zone. So that you are free to do just what you need to do and say moment to moment to move you effortlessly forward. Effortlessly is a very important word to move you effortlessly forward to those places for which you have given your subconscious mind the coordinates. In other words, how you have set your mind. I'll finish off this episode by coming back to the word I've just used effortlessly. People think life is a struggle. People think the work that they have to do is hard. The key word in the two sentences I've just uttered is think. They only think it's hard. It's thinking that makes things hard. It is thinking that brings about struggle. It is thinking that creates stress. Modern neuroscience has proved elegantly that when we are in the zone, when we know why we're doing what we're doing, and when we know how we will feel when we have achieved the outcome from what we're doing, there are all the components of the two-piece jigsaw there, all two of them. When I operate in that zone, it is effortless. Now, one final, final point. If you want to see effortlessness, you'll probably see it on Sky Sports or Eurosport or Bein Sport or whatever sports channels you have at your disposal. Because really high class performers seem to have more time and take less effort to do what they're doing. They are people who are completely in the zone. And you'll see them on your sports channels any day of the week. Does it translate into ordinary everyday life? It translates effortlessly. People often wonder when I use sports analogies, you know, surely I only need to be focused for 90 minutes if I'm playing football. We need to be focused for all our waking hours during the course of the day. Surely the analogy doesn't stack up. We don't need analogies because the science is really, really clear. Once I'm meditating regularly, I retune and restructure my brain literally to a point where I am in flow most of the time every day. I know I'm in flow most of the time every day. I know many of the people with whom I work are in flow most of the time every day. I didn't say most of the time, some days. I said most of the time every day. It'll work for anybody, it'll work for everybody, it'll work for you. All you have to do is take control of what's going on between your own two ears by coming to your senses, by seeing, feeling, hearing, smelling and tasting what is actually going on through the simple everyday process of meditation.